So we are in a series called Any Questions, where we are inviting the congregation, people that call this church home, to ask any questions they have about theology, about the Bible, about Christianity, about faith. So we've gotten a lot of those questions from you guys. They're coming in every week, and you're welcome to submit a question to, through our website form or, uh, or drop one in the offering plate on your way out or at the Welcome Center. Uh, but we're, we're trying to just answer questions that people have. Generally, we find that the questions that young people have in the youth group are the same questions the adults have because the adults didn't get their questions answered when they were teenagers. So we've all got similar questions about faith and, uh, and different topics in the Bible. So normally, we kind of go through, through passages verse by verse and that kind of thing. Some of these, by their very nature, are just topical topics because they're topics, they're topical. And, um, and you have to find, you have to comb through Scripture to find what God's Word has to say about these things. Uh, first of all, I guess first things first, for those that don't know me, my name is Nathan Detweiler, and I'm a pastor here, one of the elders here as well. And, uh, you know, I've been, been at this church for, for many years, really enjoyed uh, being part of this family. I love especially this summer, hearing from all, all of you as you share about your bricks on the wall, about your, your households, as we, as we potluck together, which we're going to do after church today, having a potluck, potluck meal, and just get to know one another and pray for one another. It's been really uh, fantastic. Uh, but but today's, today I've taken from my list of you know, 20, 30 questions, seven questions, which I think are all related and I'm going to take time to talk about one aspect of this week and the next week to go further into a topic. And so here are the questions. And these are not, I did not paraphrase these or, or change them in any way. This is driving me nuts. I've never been good at putting this microphone on. So these are the, the, the raw questions from, from the church, from you guys. Why are groups of people in the Bible often described by the number of men present? Example given, Matthew 14, 21. That's the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. Good question. Why are lines of descendants often from fathers to sons, like in Genesis 10? Starting to get a theme here. What does it mean in Genesis 3:16 when God says that your husband will rule over you? I remember... Um, one of the pastors, one of the folks who preach here uh, was, was sharing, and they said, there's so many great 316s in the Bible, and it's true, 1 Timothy 316, John 316, then you have Genesis 316, where it's basically the, uh, um, the consequence of, of sin entering the world that is being talked about there. So it's not such a happy one. Here's question number four. Why can't women be elders or pastors in our church? Again, I didn't write these questions. They're given to me. Why can't women be elders or pastors in our church? Question number five. Are women incapable of being elders or pastors in the eyes of God? Is everyone interested in this topic? Yeah, good. What are the biblical qualifications for eldership to be an elder? And then finally, the question has some background. This is from last week. I know that there are people who believe that women should not teach in the church or even speak. They base this on 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Can you share if you do not hold to this teaching? I was trying to think of how that's like a double negative. How do I, how do I answer that? Can you share if you do not hold to this teaching? Um, so those are the seven questions. Over the next two weeks, I want to answer these questions as thoroughly as I can. 
know, the first three questions are just general questions about the culture from which the Bible emerged, the cultures from which the Bible emerged. This is the Word of God, um, and much like Jesus is fully God and fully man, this is fully inspired by God, but also has a lot of human fingerprints on it. And uh, the Bible is a product, it's a cultural product of the time it was written in some ways. There's things in the Bible that we don't understand because they're no longer culturally happening in our day. Uh, so the first three questions about why are groups of people often described by number of men present? Why are descendants often fathers to sons? What does it mean that God says your husband will rule over you in Genesis 3.16? Um, these are very interesting questions, and they, they tell you something about the, the culture from which the Bible emerged. Uh, the last four questions are very relevant to us as a church, asking the important question of how we think about women in ministry at the church, at New Life Fellowship, and in our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance that we're a part of. Really, really important questions, and things that are not always talked about um, on the surface. So let's, let's get into it. We're going to first address the first three questions, the cultural questions, and jump into the last four and see what we can, what we can learn there. So why are groups of people in the Bible often described by the number of men present, like in Matthew 14, 21? And again, one chapter later in Matthew 15, 38, the feeding of the 5,000, it's the second miraculous feeding passage. Um, why, why does it only talk about the men present? The quote is, in Matthew 15, uh, 21, 14, 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, women and children sound like an afterthought to that passage, right? The parallel accounts in Mark, Luke, and John do not even go as far as to mention the women and children. They simply mention the number of men that were present. And because this is how it's written, the Bible is written, people draw conclusions that, that women and children are somehow, they don't count. You know, this is what the Bible says. It leaves them out in three Gospels and includes them as an as a addendum on the other one. Uh, it seems offensive. It sounds like maybe it's sexist towards women, demeaning towards children. You know, at the very least, the things we know of Christ and how he, worked, he, how he walked and moved, he accepted children when disciples were pushing them away, and he entertained conversations with women um, all across society, including letting uh, Mary, the sister of Martha, sit in the position of a man, which is learning at the, uh, the rabbi's feet, which is part of the reason Martha was not happy with Mary. She was supposed to be in the kitchen. But she was taking that traditional male thing, and Jesus was letting her do it. So it doesn't seem like a Jesus thing to us. But, th but you know what? Ancient society was, and I'm not saying this in a buzzword kind of way, the way they use it today about everything, it was thoroughly a patriarchal society. It was a tribal patriarchal society. And so uh, society was tiered, not God's vision of society, but humans' vision of society. And the top rung of the social ladder would be men, then women, and then children. Children, and then, and then slaves after children. That gives you an idea of how children were. were um, this is why Jesus accepting children and ministering to them and blessing them was so significant. Because they were like on the low rung of the ladder. They were disposable. They were, they were, not, they were not treasured as I feel they generally are treasured in our culture today. I'm grateful for this, that we treasure children. But in that society, it was men, women, children, slaves, etc. And most of the writings of this time period, not just the Bible, 
have a strong male voice in them because they're most, mostly, with some exceptions, written by men. So this whole thing about Matthew kind of on the sly saying, besides women and children, you have to understand, this was not to denigrate or to, to despise or look down on women and children. This is kind of like a progressive move on Matthew's part. Like, usually women are not mentioned. And he's saying, well, actually, uh, it wasn't just men. It was men and children. And, 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 of course, Matthew wanted to give Jesus the most glory possible. And it's much more glory in feeding 20,000 than feeding 5,000, wouldn't you say? I mean, there could have been anywhere between 15 and 20,000, maybe more, depending on how many kids these families had that were fed in Matthew 4, 14 and Matthew 15. And I think Matthew just wanted to give this great big glory to Jesus. And also, you know, in some ways, just kind of um, fly in the face of just the way these things are usually done. And so women and children count. We see it in Jesus' life. We see it even in the way Matthew writes his gospel. In a very patriarchal society, the word of God, the God's word to us is, these people matter to me. Um, these people are significant. They're very important. The fact that the Bible came out of this largely patriarchal society or, or male, male-centered society is also the reason that gene- genealogies often speak of lines of descendants from fathers to sons, as in the question that was asked. You know, it's a cultural underpinning of the scripture. Um, and women are, from genealogies, in ancient genealogies, usually conspicuously missing completely. Except for in Matthew, when there's five women mentioned in Jesus Christ's genealogy. So our best Jewish man, five women mentioned, this flies in the face of the cultural convention which is that women and children and slaves are, are worth less and men are worth more, so we don't need to mention them. Matthew's saying, look, actually, here's five. This is, for its time, progressive. Not in a bad way, in a good, in a good way. So, you know, we're acknowledging here, you know, the, the Bible came out of a largely male-centered society culturally, The sections of the Bible, being the word of God, are not contained by the culture of the original authors. And so those authors, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, were carried along, it says, and inspired to include women, children, stories of women and children with Jesus, and also to include um, even letters to slave owners and slaves in the New Testament when Paul is kind of um, working on getting some slaves freed. So... Quite an, quite, quite an amazing, amazing thing. That it came out of this society that's very male-centered, but the genealogy and the names are there. Um, I would argue that these two examples in Matthew uh, are, are definitely exceptional for their time. And, and of course, Jesus' Jesus's actions, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the one that interprets everything from the Old Testament and the New Testament and everything, the Rosetta Stone of, of the world, Jesus Christ, warmly accepted women and children at every turn and uh, often shocked his followers by associating with people that his followers would not associate with. So Jesus' followers were too good for children, too good for women, too good for sinners, and Jesus wasn't. And so they were pretty proud to follow Jesus when he was being a, a, a really cool, you know, saying all these cool sayings, and he seems like he's the coolest guy in town. But they got pretty squirrely when he started doing things that they didn't want 
they didn't think anyone should be doing, like associating with women, like, like blessing children. They were like, oh, maybe we're not so on board with you, Jesus. But this is the nature of Christ. Christ troubles everybody. And, you know, sermons like this trouble everybody. Um, G- Jesus shook things up. He troubled the religious. He troubled the righteous. He troubled the unrighteous. No matter how you slice it, Jesus was someone that people had to make a decision about. So the Bible is a product of, uh, definitely a product of its historical context. We need to understand some of the, some of the culture from which it emerged. But it's also outside of it as well. And it is the word of God that transcends uh, the book and is very um, convicting to everybody. You know, sometimes Jackie and I, we watch, you know, reruns of Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry if that makes me a bad Christian. They're equal opportunity uh, uh, humorists. Um, But we, we watch reruns of Saturday Night Live. Maybe you've had this experience in this day of instant television on Netflix and Hulu. We watch reruns of SNL from like five or ten years ago and our mouths drop open and we say, how, how did they get away with saying that? Like, how could they joke around about that? How could they be doing that accent? How could they be doing, I mean, blackface? <laughs> like, they have white guys playing black people on SNL from like five, ten years ago. And that was no problem for anyone back then. But now we're like, and it's, it's a problem. We know it's a problem now, but at the time, you know, people didn't, didn't balk at it. We, we, the, the, the story is, um, we, we tend to harshly judge things based on our current cultural lens, like what we think about the world now. And we kind of hold old things to the, to the morality of our current day, and they don't hold up because the culture changes so quickly. As opposed to the Word of God, which is timeless, you know, culture is like a river that just keeps flowing and keeps changing. And, uh, and as a result, in shorter and shorter time periods, just years at a time, Things are shockingly out of date and even offensive to our modern ears. And of course, in the examples given, re, um, I'm glad that there has been offense about those things, that those are not good things. Um, but I think we need to give Jesus Christ and the church that he started credit for being progressive in their day, in their time and their place, mentioning women, mentioning children, where normally those were left out of the official tallies. Um, I think we need to not judge Jesus with modern eyes, um, or any eyes, really, but just simply to say, look, that was pretty amazing what they did back then, and it points us to what we should do today. So on to the third question. Now, what does it mean in Genesis 3.16 when God says, a husband will rule over his wife? Because your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. In this passage, in its context, God is simply stating the consequences of the sin that just took place preceding it. This is a consequence of sin. Genesis 1-3 to tells us how God really wants things to be. We learned in Genesis 1-3, to before, before the fall, 1 and 2, that God originally created male and female in God's image, as mutually interdependent beings who need each other um, and reflect God together. They're made in the image of God. They're made for each other to work harmoniously together. That's God's plan for, for humanity, that the male and female, the Adam and Eve, would work harmoniously together. The, following, the, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin in Genesis 3 
following the temptation of the devil, distorted this vision of the image of God, in, especially in, in marriage. It really, really made a huge wound. And this vision of a mutually interdependent, beautiful relationship between men and women where they support one another, where they cover for one another, where they, where they make up for one another's um, deficiencies, that was distorted, and it became about competition. The man and the woman competing for power in the marriage relationship. And so this is, this Genesis 3.16, it's, it's, it is the, the fruit of the tree of disobedience to God. It's where marriage got sh- temporarily shattered and smashed. And it describes this frantic sort of state of being for Eve and her daughters, where your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. It's not a pleasant-sounding situation. And I know these, these scriptures have been used to, of course, reinforce the very things that God would not want to happen. Like, hey, the Bible says I will rule over you, so you need to do what I say. I mean, the Bible has been abused so many times over the years to say what people wanted to say. And we miss the whole picture. You know, God wants, doesn't want marriages to be competitions. God wants marriages to be like the Trinity. Jesus said, said marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. You know, with the Trinity, God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, completely equal, working together all the time um, without any kind of sense of who is, res- who is really responsible here, you know? Jesus is always pointing to, um, to the Father. Jesus is always pointing to the Holy Spirit. The Father points to Jesus. It's, it's a sort of like mutual admiration society, right, I guess, where the distortion of, of competition has destroyed this oneness. Um, God wants to restore it. He wants to restore. He wants to bring marriages back to a time that is pre-Genesis 3.16. And he wants, in Ephesians 5, we see this. Again, this is a passage that's used to, um, to reinforce abuse at times in the world, but this is not what the passage is about. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ did when he died for his church. Now that is a mutual submission where one person sacrifices their, their rights, their desires to lift up the other, and the other is doing the same for them. It's a mutuality, just like the Trinity, um, unbroken fellowship. No competition, just lifting up, lifting up, everyone lifting each other up. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. That's also implicitly stated in that first sentence. And husbands, love your wives. The Christ loved the church. This is what was broken at the fall. And this is what Jesus, as, as we are now new creations in Christ, is saying, we're going to go back to that. We're going to go back to that mutuality. Um, we're going to no longer, uh, you know, submission in the Bible means to, to, to yield power. And it's saying, husbands and wives, yield your, your power every day to bless the other person, love the other person. That's what it's saying. Do it. 
an almost miraculous, interdependent, submissive relationship characterized by self-sacrifice is what God is looking for, this mutually interdependent relationship. So no, Genesis 3.16, yes, it's God's voice speaking. But it's God's voice delivering the consequences of sin, not God saying, this is the way I want the world to be. We've all seen, you know, couples where, where they are, you know, competing, clearly competing with one another and trying to outdo each other and jabbing at each other all day long. You know, you did this. Well, you did this. It's, it's, it's circular. It's agonizing for all friends and family to be around. That's not Christ's way. He wants people to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and to love each other to the point of death. That's what it's, that's what it's about. So yes, God's, God, God's best passage on marriage would have to be, if any person in Christ is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Let's go back. Let's go back to, the, to that mutual relationship that's beautiful. Those are the first three questions, and those are probably the least, the less um, controversial and, and in, perhaps interesting ones. Um, so here's the next four questions. Some of this we're going to get to next week. We're going to talk a little bit more, more about eldership next week. But the first question is, why can't women be elders or pastors in our church? Are women incapable of being elders or pastors in the eyes of God? What are the biblical qualifications for eldership? And then um, there's some people that believe women should not teach or even speak based on 1 Corinthians 14. Can you share if you do not hold to this teaching? And yeah, I do not hold to that teaching. Um, as you, as you probably has been made clear, I'm very comfortable with women getting up and sharing. Uh, the reason for that is because 1 Corinthians 11 talks about guidelines for how women should share in church. So we'll go into that more later, another time. But 1 Corinthians 14 is clearly a contextual uh, piece that uh, would contradict earlier parts of the letter if it were read the way that it's read by some people. You know, women are certainly... Um, should speak in church. Um, so these, these, are the, these are the big four questions. So the first, the first thought I have when I read these questions is I'm about to mansplain a sermon to some people. <laughs> Here I go, the, the white guy mansplaining to the church. <laughs> now, well, I'm just kind of kidding with you, but um, I'll try not to mansplain any of this, uh, because I'm sure that many people in this church could tell many true stories of when they felt snubbed, meaning ignored or brushed off by the church, whether it was your high, sc- your, uh, high school ministry, college ministry, a church you attended, um, maybe even in this church. Maybe women have felt that way in this church. I hope not. We're hearing a lot of these kind of stories now because of social media and the internet, and we're hearing from people like we've never heard from people before. Beth Moore, who many of you are familiar with, who's the amazing Bible teacher, uh, preacher, uh, pretty incredible person, very, very spiritually mature person in ministry for decades and decades and decades. She wrote an open letter uh, a couple years back, and I... It was just such a heart-wrenching letter to read. But she has brought a lot of attention to the fact that women have not been treated well in her denomination and in her experience as a leader, as a, as a female leader. And if you're familiar with Beth Moore, you know that she is a sincere, submitted-to-Christ person, as if I needed to say that. Um, but this is what she writes in her article. We need to listen to this. 
As a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced deference, not just proper respect, which I was glad to show, to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature, so I wouldn't be taller than he. I've ridden elevators in hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not being spoken to, and even more awkwardly, in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expected to understand was all in good fun. I am a laugher. I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it, and I also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, Brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and pour over the scriptures before you were born, when you were still in your pull-ups. She's great. Some will inevitably argue that the disrespect was not over gender, but over my lack of formal education. But that, too, largely goes back to issues of gender. Where was a woman in my generation and denomination to get seminary training to actually teach the scriptures? One of my mentors, Amy Davis from Nyack College, you know, she, was, she was my first mentor in college. I was, I was, a, I was a student chaplain. I was a Christian school for my last two years. And um, she was a brand new New Testament professor, brilliant mind, brilliant teacher. And she was my mentor. I met with her every week to go over my spiritual growth and plans and stuff. And uh, to me, that was not remarkable at the time. Uh, but in reading her book, uh, Biblical Womanhood book, which is in the lobby and for sale and excellent. Also, I read it because I'm a, and even though I'm a man, I got a lot from it. Come on now. <laughs> Reading that book, I realized she, she, she wrote about the experience of coming to Nyack College, our, our flagship school, as the first, like, female Bible professor and just what that was like. You know, think about that. Like, this institution had been around forever and this is, like, their first one. To me, it was not remarkable as, like, a as like a, you know, late teen or nine, 20 years old or whatever I was. Uh, but for her, it was a huge step, and now there's a lot more faculty that are female there. But this is recent history, you know what I mean? And uh, I probably got, you know, more from her than almost anyone I've ever worked with in that regard. Except for maybe Frank Chan, who's the other guy at the college. It's amazing. I know a man who told me years ago something that really stuck with me. He said, not, not, not at his church, but he said when he attended a church that had a female preacher, it made him sick. Like, really? It's a visceral response. You know, it was, it was just deeply woven into his fabric, and that's just how he felt. So this is the situation that we find ourselves in, in my opinion. We want to teach what the Bible has to say about this and that thing, but there's a whole context that we're living in that's very painful and very messed up and regressive. So maybe the only thing I should say is that I'm really sorry all this stuff happened and continues to happen and finish the sermon, but that's not, that's not what I'm going to do. That would be the easy thing to do. Um, I just think we have a lot that we need to take into account when we talk about these issues. That being said, I will show my cards to let you know that in our denomination, women are not currently allowed to be elders in the church, in the, in the Northeast, uh, in the United States Alliance. But the denomination is having big conversations about these topics right now and moving along. Um, women are being uh, 
or they're, they're talking about uh, ordaining women, uh, calling women as pastors. But the big concern in our denomination is that if we call someone a pastor, that they're, it's going to be assumed that they're an elder. And our, you know, our denomination believes and has scriptural reasons for why they don't, they're not comfortable with that one thing, females being elders. But this is in motion. You know, why is our denomination working on this? Why are they trying to lift up female leaders? Well, because they're more than 50% of the church, and we're losing, for one thing. So we need all, we need all hands on deck. But number two, our denomination with John Stumbo at the helm and people like David Lynn are trying to repent of an unspoken limiting of women in ministry that is not biblical, while at the same time admitting that they believe that male eldership is the teaching that the Bible teaches. So they're trying to do these two things at once. Keep males, male eldership, which, which they're convicted is, is taught in the Scripture, while at the same time making up for these unspoken rules that have come about. You know, in our denominational leadership, I see humble desire to repent of sin among our leadership, acknowledging the sins of sexism and desiring to, to change things to make them more biblical by not limiting women from roles that they should be able to fill anything besides being an elder. Because what has come out of some of these discussions is that aside from eldership, women are permitted to do just about anything in ministry. You know, women are gifted as pastors, even if they're not called that. The women are gifted as preachers and teachers. Uh, women are gifted as top-level leaders in churches. Before we were a denomination, A.B. Simpson was planting churches all over the Northeast. You'll see one in every small town in the Northeast. And they were pretty much run by women until some men came along, you know, they, by necessity. That was when we were a movement, not a denomination. When you become a denomination, you have to start making rules, and then, you know, that, then it's no longer okay just to have an ambiguous kind of position, which I understand. But uh, women, are, women are gifted. But unspoken rules have governed what Christian women believe they can or cannot do in ministry. And I think the unspoken, unbiblical rules need to be torn down, in my opinion. I have submission to Christ in answer to the prayer of, um, please send workers into your harvest field, Jesus. Jesus says to pray for that. So part of that is unleashing women, the other 58% of us, to, to do the work that God's called them to do. As I said, in our denomination, you know, they are, they're not considering making women into elders. What they're saying is we believe eldership is scripturally male thing, but all this unspoken stuff, the stuff that Beth Moore is talking about, this, dismiss, this dismissing of women and not providing um, any kind of sense of, oh, you could go to seminary and be, and be a pastor and use your gifts. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to work against. So right now our... our our denomination is discussing whether to call women pastors who are pastors or if that will be something that will overstep the eldership principle. So that's a good thing to, to think about. I pretty much bypassed the entire conversation and just simply, in my own ministry, tried harder to remove artificial limitations that have been placed on people in the church. You know, in my, in my opinion, women should be leading among the men, speaking, preaching, pastoring, teaching. Um, and I believe that this is also where our denomination desires to see happen, to see women empowered and released. And you'll see 
even locally in our local district office in Rome, New York, and in our office in, uh, in Ohio and at the seminary, you know, this is being worked on, and they are providing training programs and ways for women to be lifted up in ministry. There are ways to move towards your goals as a female minister or as a male minister in our denomination that are not limited, uh, and I, I think we, can take, we should take advantage of those things. But we need, we need, we need um, everyone to be a full ministry partner. That's what David Lynn says in our district. We need everyone, all hands on deck. So to answer that question, why can't women be elders or pastors in our church? The answer is they can be pastors, and they are pastors, and they, are, they have been pastoring, because um, that's a spiritual gift, not, not necessarily an office. No, we're not talking about, like, you know, this, this is just a, a gift that women have to pastor, and women are doing it. But they, they are not permitted to be elders at this time uh, because our denomination has seen a very, you know, and, you, and we see this in, in the pastors about eldership. We'll see them next week in Titus 1, 5 to 9, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, and, they, and then the Corinthians passage. All of these are written assuming that elders will be male. There is no passage about eldership that opens the door for women to be elders in, in those passages that have been discussed. And so, since there's no hint in the, in the teachings of eldership in the Bible um, that women are called to serve as elders and overseers, you know, our, our, our denomination has painstakingly come to a belief that this is a male office at this time. But again, all this is being discussed and is in motion. But eldership is it. That's it. It's the only thing that women are currently not permitted to do in our denomination as a ministry. Women are authorized to be congregation-wide pastors, teachers, preachers, leaders of all kinds, just not elders. And it wouldn't be, and it isn't because they wouldn't be capable of the ministry in God's eyes, which is the second question that was asked. Are women incapable of being elders or pastors in the eyes of God? The answer is absolutely no. Women are absolutely qualified to be pastors and elders and the kind of things, the kind of reasons that have been given as to why they would make poor leaders and pastors and elders and presidents in our culture are hogwash. They really are. It's like, <laughs> just some of the things you're, you're hearing in your mind right now that you've heard said, it's hogwash. You know, women are capable of effective leadership and all that entails. Um, many times I've thought to myself, we have plenty, plenty of women in our church that would qualify as elders if they, if they, were, if they were men um, because their, their, their character and, and such is so high. Um, and next week we will be discussing the biblical qualifications for elders and aside from this question of gender. But this week I wanted to end with an encouragement for all of you, especially for the women of the church and of the outside of this church who may be from other churches. I, wanted to, I want you to look at the limitations you feel have been placed on you by modern unspoken or spoken church culture or by the people who have been authority over you. And I would ask that you thoughtfully get rid of things in Jesus' name if there are unbiblical reasons for not being in leadership. Women can be top-tier pastors of men, women, and children. Women are capable of being top-tier leaders of whatever ministry God's placed in their heart to do. And as we've already seen in recent days at New Life, in the last month even, the women are top-tier preachers and teachers in our congregation. 
Top tier. Outstanding. Enviable, if, I, if you will. I, I listen to some of the women in the church speak, and I, I'm so thankful. Women are not limited to children's ministry, music ministry, or ministering to other women only, though these are all wonderful endeavors that should be taken on. But I'm convinced that any limitations to the ministries available to women at New Life, aside from eldership, are probably artificial in nature. And that many of the things misunderstood in Scripture that seem to say otherwise are explained and have something to do with the time and the place, the context of that teaching that was given. So I'm going to end with this encouragement. Moses' sister Miriam was one-third of Israel's top leadership, along with Moses and Joshua in the Bible. Deborah served as a judge of all the people of God, like a president. She was like the president of God's people in the book of Judges. Why? Because she was amazing, I guess. When, when rediscovering the law and choosing whether to consult Jeremiah, Nahum, or Zephaniah, King Josiah chose to consult with Huldah because though she does not have a book named after her, she was called exceptional among all of the prophets of God. And so a woman. And she was able to explain the law clearly to the spiritually hungry King Josiah. Mary, the mother of Christ, raised up Jesus and his brother James. And if you look at Mary's Magnificat in Luke and compare it to the teachings of James and the teachings of Christ, you will see that Jesus, our Savior, and his brother James, the theology that they uh, put forward, was clearly influenced by their mom. Very clearly. Junia, this is a, I thought this was crazy. I read a book, and um, there's, a, there's a woman's name who's identified as an apostle, and they changed her name to a male-sounding a male name because they thought it was an error, but it turns out, in the latest scholarship, they changed it back to the woman's name because that's just what it says. Um, Junia was called by Paul in Romans 16 7, an apostle above other apostles. There is no male form of the name Junia known in antiquity. It doesn't exist. So that's just ridiculous. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos the full truth of the gospel when he didn't have it. Women like Phoebe and Lydia were wealthy businesswomen and some of the greatest benefactors of the church. They provided the financial means for the movement to grow and, and many times the, the home and the space for that movement to grow. You know, without these benefactors, these women... Paul and the other apostles would not have been able to go very far, especially with the gas prices like they are. You know, so my message is not, not to be controversial, but to say, you know, women, step beyond what you think your limitations might be. Minister in Christ's name with all of your heart according to the calling of God placed in your life and your gifts. I am convinced that we can be faithful to the teachings of the Bible without losing 50-plus percent of our ministers and leaders in the church. I'm a cha- I, I, I want to look at the... the the elder question and what, what, what the qualifications are for eldership uh, next week. But today I just really wanted to reflect on those unspoken limitations that we've all felt and heard. The ways that women have been made to feel. Women of amazing character like a Beth Moore. This shouldn't be. Uh, we need everybody to fulfill this commission that Jesus has given us. Receive this blessing from Jude 25. Oh, sorry, Jude... Um, There's only one chapter. (laughs) Verse 24. 
To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You are dispersed to go and be the church.